Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Pantheism is the radical belief that reality and God are one and the same thing. What makes it so radical? Why has it been so feared? for 400 years. Today's special guest, philosopher Mary Jane Rubinstein, shows how the idea threatens much more than just religion. Mary Jane Rubinstein is professor of religion at Wellesian University in Connecticut, and her book, Worlds Without End, The Many Lives of the Universe, examines cosmological models throughout history from the worldviews of ancient Greece through to the well-respected multiverse theory in modern science. This talk was recorded live at our festival, How the Light Gets In. If you would like to book a place at the upcoming London edition at the end of this month, just use the code RTIMES for 20% off your tickets. For more information, just follow the link in the show notes. It's now time to welcome Mary Jane Rubinstein to Philosophy for Our Times. My goodness, thank you so much for coming this afternoon. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's just delightful to see you. So what I'm hoping to do this afternoon is to give a brief introduction to my latest book. The title is uh, Pen Theologies. It's a word I made up. Uh, the subtitle is Gods, Worlds, and Monsters. I got the idea for the project while I was writing about the stories that the natural sciences are currently telling us. Beautiful stories of mythic proportions about infinite universes, fish that become land creatures, photons that make decisions, trees that communicate, rocks that are alive. All these stories are taking on for our secular world the role that sacred stories used to play. All of them tell us in different ways where we came from, how things get made, and how we ought to behave in relation to the world that we're a part of. Now, of course, these scientific stories say they have nothing to do with religion. Some of them, like the multiverse and some forms of evolution, even proclaim that they disprove the existence of God. But what's striking to me is that they're not really getting rid of God at all. They're just reassigning God's major tasks to the universe itself. They're attributing creation and sustenance and governance, destruction and redemption, all to forces inside the world rather than a force outside the world. So rather than kicking God out, one might say they're sort of pulling God all the way in. The philosophical name for this identity of God and world is pantheism. So I thought, this is great. I'll write a book about the unintentional pantheism of the natural sciences. I'll start with a quick conceptual history of pantheism, and then I'll demonstrate its reappearance in the natural and social sciences, despite the professed atheism of its authors. The problem was, the moment I went to gather the history of pantheism, I found there is no such history. 
far from being a coherent school or even a concept, pantheism is really just an accusation. It's just a nasty thing to call an idea that a philosopher thinks is dangerous or dumb. So I ended up having to take a step back and figure out why pantheism is such a bad word in the Western tradition that made it up. I'm going to sketch a bit of that history here as a way to introduce the concerns of this book. In the first half of the talk, I'll explain what's so threatening about pantheism. And in the second half, I'll try to start reconstructing it as a concept to ask what pantheism might actually mean if we gave it a moment to speak before laughing it off the stage. Ultimately, and I'm thinking here of our friends at Extinction Rebellion, I think pantheism might be an interesting position to consider, just to consider, as we try to change our vision of the earth that we've been exploiting as an inert set of resources for human comfort. So here goes. Part one. In 1697, the French intellectual Pierre Bayle published his historical and critical dictionary, an eclectic set of rambling essays about biblical figures, monarchs, a couple of Asian empires, and the author's untrammeled loathing of the deceased philosopher Baruch Spinoza. Calling Spinoza a Jew by birth, and afterwards a deserter from Judaism and lastly an atheist, Bale does not even take the time to explain the man's arguments. As far as he is concerned, even the quickest glance by the dullest of humans will reveal that Spinoza's philosophy surpasses all the monstrosities and chimerical disorders of the craziest people who were ever put away in lunatic asylums. What is this surpassing monstrosity, this chimerical lunacy? Bale only names it once, as if dwelling on it any longer might make it contagious. Hiding it in a footnote in a subordinate clause, Bale tells us that this insanity is the notion that mind and body are just attributes of the same substance, a single mental bodily everything that Spinoza called God or nature. So here's our monstrosity. According to Spinoza, God and nature are the same thing. The universe is what we mean when we say the word God. Unexpected? Perhaps. Unorthodox? Yes. Heretical even. But why does Pierre Bale go out of his mind in the face of this idea? And why does he keep calling it monstrous? According to Michel Foucault, the word monster means mixture. Monsters are mixtures of different species, different sexes, different materials. Monsters mix things that ought to be opposed, like a manticore with the body of a lion and the head of a human. In other renditions, manticores also have the tail of a scorpion and the wings of a bat. The monster is a patching together of different parts. Now, as you've probably heard, Western philosophy, in its more sober forms, makes stark separations between mind and body, male and female, the rational and the irrational, light and darkness. Each of these is defined by not being its opposite. Moreover, these oppositions are unequal. The categories on the right are traditionally subordinated to the categories on the left. The stuff on the left is better, stronger, more real. And so the left side includes all the characteristics we tend to associate with God, while the right includes the characteristics we associate with world or creation or nature. 
God is anthropomorphic, right? has a kind of humanoid form, unchanging, perfect, and masculine, while the world is animal, vegetal, changing, imperfect, and feminine. We still we talk about Mother Earth. So when Spinoza tells us that God is the world, he's making a very big monster. By equating God with matter, Spinoza mixes the changing and the unchanging, created and creator, divinity and dirt, and as such, produces the most monstrous hypothesis that could be imagined, the most absurd, and the most diametrically opposed to the most evident notions of our mind. Now this guy, Bale, Pierre Bale, does tend to be a cantankerous writer, I should announce that, but his essay on Spinoza is honestly just a riot of unsubstantiated name-calling. In addition to the repeated charges of monstrosity, Bale dubs Spinoza's teachings absurd, horrible, and vile. His ethics, an execrable abomination. His metaphysics, poppycock. And his theopolitical treatise he calls a pernicious and detestable book. In a similar vein, one of Spinoza's contemporaries wrote that his books had been forged in hell by a renegade Jew and the devil. (laughs) And it's good, right? And the telltale sign of this forgery is the diabolical notion that God and nature are the same thing. This is the position a later anti-Spinozist will derisively name pantheism. Okay, so etymologically, pantheism means all God. Pan is all in Greek, theos, God. But it's not clear what all God means, in part because pantheism is a polemical rather than a positive term. A flood of people will say, you're a pantheist and that's absurd. But very few say, my doctrine is pantheist and this is what that means. So we kind of have to patch it together. Casually, the term pantheism tends to connote personal or communal reverence for nature. And it's no accident that Greek mythology gives the realm of nature to the goat god Pan. The word in Greek actually becomes the same thing, Pan and Pan. Pan, a monstrous mixture of divinity, animality, and humanity. Literarily, pantheism often erupts in the form of the goat god himself. Pan is all over poetry. He tumbles into Renaissance, Romantic, and Victorian poetry to play the pipes, lounge with shepherds, dance in caves, chase nymphs, and generally put the pan in pansexual. But philosophically, pantheism remains little more than a limit case, the position nearly everybody wants to avoid. But why? What's the matter with pantheism? To begin, it might help to address this question with its opposite. Namely, why is pantheism so attractive? Why does it keep arising such that it needs to be so constantly denounced? Might there be something alluring about this abominable position? A classic case of such ambivalence can be found in the work of the Reverend Nathaniel Smith Richardson, an Anglican theologian in a transcendentalist New England that's just starting to catch the fervor of spiritualism. The whole region is allegedly raving with pantheism, which Richardson calls a misguided, dangerous, anti-intellectual, and even appalling movement. At the same time, he says, he can see why pantheism has swept up the young and unchurched. There is a generosity about it, he admits, and a kindliness that's captivating. The kindly generosity of pantheism is its vision of God in all things. It's coloring the whole world divine as if it bore in its hand the wand of an enchanter. It's a gorgeous vision, he admits, with a bewitching power. 
Note the feminine and sexualized language here. Pantheism is enchanting, bewitching, and gorgeous. If you've got the stomach for it, you'll see this sexed-up femininity coursing throughout the entire anti-pantheist genre. For example, the Reverend Morgan Dix of Manhattan warns that men lacking in sufficient education may have been tempted, seduced, tainted, poisoned by pantheism unawares. Similarly, Alexis de Tocqueville fears that pantheism ranks among those philosophies most likely to entice the human mind in democratic ages. Herman Melville's Ishmael confesses while meditating on what he calls the mysterious divine Pacific that lifted by these eternal swells, you needs must own the seductive God bowing your head to Pan. And Melville himself, in a dramatically homoerotic letter to Nathaniel Hawthorne, says that even though it is flummery, pantheism is monstrously attractive to Melville. So there's that word again. Pantheism is monstrous because it conflates opposite categories, God and world. And fittingly, it keeps provoking conflated emotional responses. The monstrous mixture of creature and creator gives rise to a monstrous mixture of attraction and repulsion, of loathing and longing, of I hate this thing, but I can't seem to think about anything else. Part two. In her feminist rereading of Plato's Cave, Luce Irigaray reminds us of Western philosophy's raging ambivalence toward women. Like the Freudian boy-child, philosophy aims to make its way from the dark womb space of the earth to the father's brilliant ideas, from paganism to monotheism, earth goddess to daddy god, the many to the one, the cave to the sky. Women, then, are the abandoned origin of philosophy, and as such, they're a complex site of disgust and desire, repudiation and nostalgia, rejection and command. As Edward Said and generations of post-colonial scholars have demonstrated, a similarly violent ambivalence motivates Western representations of the so-called East. Orientalist literature both glorifies and vilifies a feminized and racialized other, at once seductive and repulsive. And this is the problem, I think, with pantheism. It seems to be a foreign, feminine, dark, colonized invasion into the supposedly rational structure of white European thought. So for example, making no effort to hide his Orientalist panic, Richardson's treatise begins by proclaiming pantheism is the child of the mysterious East. As evidence, Richardson imagines a nameless Indian sage in some dim and fragrant grove or silent mountain cavern, dreaming up the absurd idea that even dark and earth-born masses are suffused with the divine expression of the one animating spirit. Thanks to its radical egalitarianism, Richardson admits, pantheism is a captivating philosophy. The problem is that it threatens to keep captivating, advancing its appalling movement, there's the ambivalence, to such an extent that he says pantheism in Europe and the West is destined to become the correlative of Buddhism in the East. <laughs> Goddess forbid. Such pantheist seduction, Richardson insists, can only be counteracted by Christian orthodoxy. Above all things, he says, let there be a plain, distinct, and dogmatic teaching of the incarnation of the eternal word, and the caps are all in the original manuscript. <laughs> this is 
is a reference, of course, to the appearance of God in human form in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. When Richardson says we need to proclaim that God came into the world as one man, he's saying God is not the whole animal, vegetable, mineral world. Just that one guy, right? In occupied Palestine, zero-ish CE. What panics Richardson about the advance of pantheism is not, however, the simple demise of Christendom. Rather, what he fears above all is a kind of collective, racialized unmanning, the conversion, in his words, of rosy Western men into dusty, earthbound, womanly pseudo-Buddhists. He is terrified, in short, by blurred distinctions and cross-boundaries of East and West, passivity and activity, femininity and masculinity, earth and God, darkness and light. So at this point, I'd like to shift from the diagnostic to the prescriptive. If pantheism is reviled because it threatens the very structure of Western philosophy, religion, and political order, then might it be useful to those of us who seek to destructure such orders? Here again are some of the foundational hierarchies of Greek, Roman, French, German, and English metaphysics. But as British philosopher of religion Grace Jansen began to argue in the late 1990s, the reason this structure still won't budge is that we haven't yet managed to destroy its root, which again is to say the opposition between God and world. In rejecting this most basic distinction, pantheism rejects the hierarchies it undergirds. So in this sense, one could argue that pantheism is more radical than atheism because it changes the meaning of the word God. Rather than a singular, anthropomorphic, masculine, all-powerful, immaterial force who either does or doesn't exist, pantheism would suggest that God means multiplicity, cosmomorphism, right, rather than anthropomorphism, multiple genders, relational power, and a promiscuous embodiment in all things. Therefore, Jansen concludes, if philosophy wants to be feminist, it's going to have to be pantheist. The argument is straightforward. It's fairly well known. Lots of people read Jansen. And yet I cannot think of a single scholar who has taken up this call. Rather, pantheism in Western thought continues to be denigrated by philosophers and theologians of nearly every school and political persuasion, from the orthodox to the heretical, liberals to liberationists, eco-feminists to Christo-capitalists, whatever it is we say we are, we are not by any means pantheists. And again, I'm trying to understand why. Part three. The objections to pantheists are numerous and often perplexingly opposed to one another. Pantheists are variously charged with materialism and anti-materialism, irrationality and excessive rationality, fanaticism and frigidity. Whatever it is the author's position is, pantheism becomes its extreme opposite. We can see a number of these conflicting accusations in the first charge Pierre Bale made against Baruch Spinoza. Well, actually, the second. The first charge he makes is that he's a Jew. The second charge he makes, and the one that kind of hangs around, is that he was an atheist. Now, at first, it may seem incoherent to call Spinoza an atheist, as Novalis famously crooned, Spinoza was a God-intoxicated man. Similarly, Goethe wrote that Spinoza does not have to prove the existence of God because for Spinoza, existence is God. So how does existence itself amount to nothing? How does the all-god of pantheism look like the no-god of atheism? 
Well, one way to call pantheism atheism would be to insist that the word God means a disembodied, singular, omnipotent, and fatherly force outside the universe. From this perspective, the pantheist's material, multiple, non-anthropic God is simply not God. It's just not God. God is God precisely because he's not the world, so pantheism is incoherent. Another way to call pantheism atheism would be to argue alongside Artur Schopenhauer that calling the world divine doesn't add anything to the concept of world. A universe that is God is materially and functionally equivalent to a universe without God. So why would you try to dress it up with divinity? As Richard Dawkins has recently argued, uh, pantheism is just sexed-up atheism. And yet, a slew of other critiques say precisely the opposite. By swallowing all things into God, they argue, pantheism doesn't eliminate God. It eliminates the world. Hegel, the philosopher, German philosopher Hegel, calls this pantheist effect a cosmism. He says, so strictly is there only God that there is no world at all. In short, pantheism tends to be accused with what the 20th century philosopher Franz Rosenzweig called Gleichmacherei, or making everything the same. You've got to love German words, right? Making everything the same. <laughs> God in nature, necessity and freedom, good and evil, pantheism seems to smush it all into one gigantic mess, melting it all into what D.H. Lawrence calls the awful pudding of one identity. <laughs> At this point, however, one might want to ask whether the only available options are a stark two-column opposition on the one hand and an awful pudding on the other. After all, the stubbornly undead metaphysical framework that opposes all these terms doesn't establish the second as genuinely different from the first, so much as a derivation or a bad copy of it. A woman, says Thomas Aquinas, is a misbegotten man. He actually has this, spec he's like, how does a woman get born? It's crazy. Maybe it means there's like a bad wind that's blowing during conception, like something. Woman is a misbegotten man. The colonized, Homi Baba teaches us, is an inadequate replica of the colonizer. Humans, we learn in Genesis, are made in the image of God, but they're under the perpetual dominion of God. In short, the oppositional logic of classical metaphysics doesn't really give us two categories at all. It gives us one, and then a kind of sad falling short of that one. From this perspective, God's traditional attributes underwrite patterns of human domination. Men and wealthy Western white folks who share the category of God are cosmically ordained to rule over everybody else, which is to say the ones who share the inferior categories of world. Speaking of domination, we've already detected an anxiety over race, gender, and sexuality in the 19th century fantasies of dark Eastern pantheists. The tendency is so pervasive that Grace Jansen attributes the whole horror over pantheism to a straightforward gender panic. Jansen draws our attention to the surprisingly recurrent language of pantheism swallowing, consuming, and assimilating all otherwise light and free beings into some dark Abyss, whose racial characteristics Jansen seems both to notice and kind of not quite notice. As she puts it, 
From a psychoanalytic perspective, one could speculate about what dread of the mother and the maternal womb lurks just below the surface of this great fear of pantheism. What exactly is this abyss, this horror of great undifferentiated darkness into which at all costs we must not be sucked? <laughs> Jansen is thinking primarily of 19th century philosophers, but this fear of being pantheistically swallowed by a dark, emasculating monster can be found even in more recent more English rejections of pantheism. Take, for example, D.H. Lawrence's often hilarious, deeply troubling diatribe against Walt Whitman. I am everything, and everything is me, and so we're all one and one identity, quips Lawrence against Whitman. He's thinking here of Whitman's ecstatic enfolding of all creatures, his infinite self encompassing atoms and bicycles and choruses and steam trains, workers in America and quadrupeds and birds, and Lawrence can simply can't stand it. All that fake exuberance, all those lists of things boiled in one pudding cloth. No, no, I don't want all those things inside me. Thank you. <laughs> There's our gender panic. Even for the notoriously lascivious Lawrence, Whitman has made himself too porous, too penetrable, too queer, a pipe opened at both ends so everything runs through. Men and women and Brooklyn and bees, Whitman's pantheism makes him the feminized recipient of all of them, including Lawrence Bristles, and here comes the race beneath the gender, quote, an Eskimo in a kayak, little and yellow and greasy, unquote. <laughs> Recalling then the temptations and seductions decried in anti-pantheist treatises, it seems that wherever one stands, pantheism is not only absurd, but also dark, genderqueer, and dangerously enticing. What early modern Victorian and contemporary authors alike all call the monstrosity of pantheism, the thing that inspires such panic, amounts to a complicated hybridity of divinity, femininity, darkness, materiality, animality, and sex, undesirable and yet insanely desirable to theists and atheists alike. So building on Jansen's analysis, I'd like to suggest that the matter with pantheism is that it threatens the Western symbolic, not just with a feminine abyss, but with queer monstrosities of race and species, with parts combined that ought to be separate and boundaries crossed that ought to be maintained. But of course, it all depends on what you mean by pantheism. I mentioned toward the beginning of this lecture that it's hard even to define pantheism. Etymologically, the term means all God, but what does anybody ever mean by all? The Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines pantheism as the two-pronged assertion that everything that exists constitutes a unity and that this all-inclusive unity is divine. By contrast, the Rutledge Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines pantheism as the view that deity and cosmos are identical. These are wildly different definitions, producing wildly different pantheisms. The first hinges the pantheist position on unity, whereas the second hinges it on worldliness, on gods being equal to the world. These might or might not be the same thing. And these two different meanings map on to a distinction that William James makes between what he calls monistic pantheism and pluralistic pantheisms. For the monist, James explains, the all means sort of all, sort of enormous all. And everything, he says, in this monistic pantheism is present to everything else in one vast, co-implicated completeness. 
For the pluralist, by contrast, the things of the world are in some respects connected and in other respects independent, so that they're not members of one all-inclusive individual fact. Monism tells us that everything is connected to everything else. Pluralism affirms that connections come and go. Monism rolls the world into one big ball. Pluralism does not. Of course, James is a pragmatist, so he knows he can't say which of these versions is ultimately true or even if it makes sense to speak this way. But he sides with pluralism for practical reasons. So here's the thing. Unlike almost any other self-proclaimed philosopher, William James actually professes a pantheist position. And unlike almost all other positions accused of pantheism, James does not make all things one. Right? Nor does he capitulate to the monotheistic two of God and world. Rather, a Jamesian pantheism would manage to count higher than two, higher even than the Trinitarian three, and locate divinity in the endless multiplicity of the material world itself. Frustratingly, James does not go on to say what a pluralist pantheism might look like. So that's what I'm up to in this book. I'm trying to stitch together monstrously a pluralist pantheism by showing that it's already there perhaps most surprisingly, in a range of contemporary scientific discourses, including general relativity, quantum mechanics, nonlinear biologies, multiverse cosmologies, earth systems theories, ecofeminisms, new materialisms, new animisms, network theory, and animal studies. It's actually everywhere. If we think of these theories as pluralist pantheisms, then we can see that far from disproving the existence of God, they're reimagining God as such, seeing the stuff we've traditionally called God in the world we're in, in the co-creative production of ants and dirt, mountains and waters, bacteria and brains. Again, far from kicking God out of the world, such pantheisms reveal endless sites of divinity in the world and as the world, and as such, quite easily into animism, naturalism, and even polytheism, all of which could either be seen as atheism or all theism, depending on your point of view. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.